Welcome back to A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. Thanks so much for being here. You can find out more about the show, hear all the past episodes, and if you'd like, become a member at abriefchat.com. Some of you who've known me for a long time might know that uh, I was in radio for the majority of my adult life, and uh, I did a fair amount of radio in a town called State College, Pennsylvania, uh, which is where Penn State is located. It's right in the dead center of Pennsylvania, kind of surrounded by fields and forests. Uh, and then there's this one little odd town with, you know, 100,000 people, 70,000 of whom are under the age of 23. Um, and when I was in State College, I was hosting a morning show. And uh, my I can no longer remember, but either my first or second most frequent guest uh, is my guest on the podcast today. Um, I didn't really grow up a theater person, but when I moved to State College, I met someone who was doing exciting things in theater who kind of converted me over to be more interested in it and to find out more about it. Uh, and also someone who wasn't afraid to use the theater to speak to the times in which we find ourselves. And I wanted to ask that someone to be on the show today before he moves across the country, which he's about about to do. So I'm very happy to be uh, sitting in the soon-to-no-longer-be living room uh, or dining room, I guess, of Richard Beaver. Richard, welcome to the show. Oh, Jason. So great to be with you. It's wonderful to have you. And uh, maybe what we'll do, uh, since unlike when we were talking before, most people listening to this won't be from the area, um, we can just set stage. Oh, I'm so sorry. Boom. Yeah, it's already starting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We can Strike pull back one. the curtain on that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We could set the stage. Yeah. There's one leaving in five minutes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> let's turn the lights on on this. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit, I guess, about what you were doing in State College, and sure. in particular, Fuse Productions, which was the main way that I knew you and the main way that I saw you work in town. Right. Well, actually, my wife, Heidi, is from State College, was born and raised in the house that we're sitting in right now. And so us leaving, we're going to be moving to Wichita, Kansas. And um, so it'll be the first time this home has been out of the family in all those years. Um, but yes, you knew me, well, first at the State Theater. Yes. I was the executive director there, which is in State College, PA. And I started Fuse Productions at the State Theater, which was the in-house theater company, more or less. <clears throat> and that's where we started. We called it Fuse because we were fusing together uh, local actors, professional actors, uh, actors and professors from the university and so on and so on. So it, it's not an acronym FU, which is what everybody's <laughs> like, what is the, what is fuse actually? Yeah. Yeah. More importantly, what's the SE? Stand for? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's the part where I get I can, stuck. Yeah, I can do the FU yeah. on my own. <laughs> so no fuse as in to bring together or fuse together anyway. Um, and so it had a kind of a community oriented beginning, because we were at a community-owned theater, the State Theater. Um, and so, and also, one of the main um, objectives of Fuse was the play reading series. And that was born out of the Sandusky scandal that happened at Penn State. If you don't know, that was the uh, pedophile who was operating mm, for 30 years, perhaps, um, uh, taking having sex with children in the locker room and so on. And so out of that, the uh, the play reading series was designed to address contemporary issues and have a place for the audience to discuss those issues. Hear the reading of the play, but then have time to discuss those things. So kind of as a place to discuss and vent if needed or work through issues, not necessarily directly related to Sandusky, but 
other things as well. And so for people who've never seen a play reading, this is where a group of actors get together and they they read the play and they act, but they're not on a set with props and set design and, and all of that. You're essentially Correct. in a room usually watching them yep. kind of read very close to you. It's exactly. With uh, music st- scripts on the music stand, they stand up to enter, they sit down to exit, you know, very basic. But they're acting the play as if it were a full-on performance. How does uh, play reading, how does that that tool uh, help you speak to current issues and bring people into that conversation? Well, first of all, you can do many of them at a fraction of the cost of a full production. And so also you don't need to sell as many tickets. I mean, there's, you know, so there's that aspect of it. But also you have fewer audience members there, which allows for more open discussion. People feel like they can actually talk and not feel intimidated because it's a larger crowd. Um, and you could take on mm, plays uh, that would not be able to be done in a bigger venue, uh, would not be able to sell tickets in a bigger venue in, in State College. And I went to quite a number of them. And I mean, in some cases, especially if I were sitting in the front row, I'd be maybe five feet mm-hmm. from a line of actors and often acting out difficult things. And you, I noticed as an audience member, you, or at least I, felt part of the drama in a way that I don't feel when I'm 30 rows back and it's clear I'm not on stage. But I'm literally sitting at the same level as the actors, you know, the same, like, phys- on the same physical floor. They're a few feet away from me. They're having these difficult conversations. And I, it's like when you're in the room with two people who are fighting or two people who are arguing it's, or whatever it might it be. It become very uncomfortable. Yeah. And that, you kind of forget that they're, Acting, you forget that there's music stands there. You forget that they're reading from the script. You used to start to uh, be enveloped into the situation. And to me, you know, that's even when I do a full production of a show, I try to do the most minimalistic set possible um, and or a unit set. So there's not a lot of changing, partly because of the spaces we're in, but also so that the audience has to fill in. They're participating right away. They're participating in the act of activating their imagination. So we're not filling in every single dot with a full production. So a a reading is the most extreme example of that because there's nothing but the actors. Yeah, which is interesting because in a way there is nothing but that almost is – that brings in everything. I mean I think – like I grew up as a kid listening to old-time radio shows where you – all you could hear was the dialogue and occasionally some foleyed – sound effects right, depending right. on the amount of money they had in the production at that time and you had to create everything else i mean that there was that that was it all you had voices and some a couple sound effects as to what everybody looked like what the situations they were surrounding themselves with that was all inside your head and this the only thing this adds to that the play reading adds to that mix is that i can see the actors but otherwise if I've had an experience kind of anything akin to theirs, I'll just fill it in from my own. You know, I can remember where I was when it happened or anything. I just bring it all with me, and it's yes. very intense. Often. And if a more fully produced show – I'm not against fully produced shows, by the way. No, I don't but, want to make that <laughs> suggestion yet. But the more fully produced it is, the, it, the there's a likelihood that you don't necessarily bring yourself into that as much because you're constantly aware you're at a theater. You're, you're in a theater, and you're it's you're removed from it a little bit more. 
Yeah, and so since since you made that point right there, I and I do want to say that over the course of the time that I lived here and knew you, I saw many of your fully produced yes. shows as well. They were uniformly amazing, and there's a few that really stand out for me. Um, uh, Assassins is definitely one of them uh, because of the the content, but also the staging was incredible. Um, and then you also put on. Uh, I said that I didn't grow up with musicals, but I did grow up with one, uh, which is chess, <laughs> and I never got to see it. And you put on a version of it, and I spent the, almost that entire night in tears uh, watching this performance of this music that I love so dearly. So I just I want to make it clear, we weren't always just in a room somewhere. Right, right, <laughs> there there right. were whole shows that looked like the shows that people expect yes, when they go of to course, see yes, theater. Yes, as well. yep, yep. So. Um, as you as you kind of look back over the the readings that you did, are there some plays that that jump out to you as as either for their own content or for the conversations they sparked? Um, we did a, a reading of a play called Four Thousand Miles, which isn't terribly controversial in its content, but it's a play about an elderly woman and her grandson. And the grandson has just ridden his bike across the country. That's why it's called 4,000 Miles. So he's, he's ridden his bike. And he's carrying with him some kind of a secret. But the reason this show was so powerful in State College is because that's basically our population. The major population is retirement communities and college students. And that was the, basically the cast of this show, one of each. And, um, and the, the effect that that had on the audience was palpable and the conversation that it that it that ensued from that was so deep that it was way beyond anything you know and that's the thing about theater each person is bringing their own experiences into it and especially in a reading thing where you're so close to it and you feel like you're part of the conversation it starts to bring up experiences that they've had that they remember or had forgotten and and the show is bringing it out of them and so those conversations then become about those things um, one that was a little more controversial was Bad Jews. <laughs> yes. We did a reading. We did a scene from it on your radio program, and the yes. F bomb was dropped. I think at least once, maybe uh, twice. Yes. Uh, with, so I'm, I'm just going to digress for for one second to say that. Um, so I I've been on the radio off and on for 30 years. And in all of that time, only one person has ever dropped an f bomb on a show that I've hosted. And I've hosted, I've hosted shows with other people speaking live for the majority of that thirty years. So it's kind of amazing. Actually. It was incredible. Uh, and that was uh, the, the actor Emily Akers, who um, you guys had gone through because the show had uh, some challenging language for the radio in it. You guys had gone through and xed a bunch of or like crossed yeah. a bunch of stuff yeah. out, but apparently maybe missed one. Uh, or and, just or in the heat of the moment, she read it. I'm I not sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I just remember the look on your face. She's Classic. just going on. I mean, just because she's in the moment, she drops the f bomb. I'm thinking, like, okay, well, this might be the end of my career. Maybe a two hundred thousand dollar fine from the FCC. <laughs> and, and and then the look on your face, because as both a, a fellow actor in the scene in in this particular case, which in the actual in a in a production you normally wouldn't have been, but you were in this case, right. but also the person who puts these productions on and directs actors, yes. and your actor has just done really the only thing she's not allowed to do in exactly. this particular context. Otherwise. <laughs> Otherwise, 
it was pretty it was amazing and i just i'm that was one of my favorite radio moments ever in my whole life as it turned out nothing nothing happened several people did hear it um including my my boss the guy who managed all the stations there who said oh yeah i I had a little adventure on your yeah i think weren't we kind of saved by the fact that it was a script as opposed to just natural conversation dropping the i mean yes i i i think in the I think in the heat of the moment, in the court, in the in the context of a drama that was being acted out from a script, I do think we were contextually saved. We would not have been legally saved in any correct, sense, correct, stretch correct, the imagination. Correct. I mean, there's f bombs in songs, and you have to edit them out yes, because the context point, of it point. being sung doesn't good help point. you at all. Yep. But we were, I think, saved kind of contextually. Yes, uh, yes, it was wonderful. But bad Jews is about you know what does it mean to be well in this in the thing about this place. I I teach it all the time in my in my directing classes, and I've. Some of my students are Jews, of course, but some are not, and some are not religious at all. Some are Catholic, some are Protestant. They all relate to what's going on in there, which is what does it mean to be a good fill in the blank? Sure. Um, and the, we obviously promoted the play, the reading of bad Jews to the Jewish community here. And so the, it was predominantly Jews in the audience. And that was a wild conversation because they were having basically the argument that's in the play. Yeah. They started to have that argument and it was, Civil, but but it was very intense. Um, the other one that I, I I even had to look it up is called the submission. I couldn't do the uh, title just escape. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's about a playwright who's right a white gay playwright who writes a play about a black experience. Now this is before Black Lives Matter, and you know, so it was very prescient. And um, hires a black woman to pretend to be the playwright, and that. That was probably the most intense conversation we had. Yeah, I yeah, I I very clearly remember that one. <laughs> and I mean, that was another um uh, I don't remember the timing of these things, but I think of like the Rachel Dolezal yeah, scandal sure, and things sure. like that. I can't remember exactly remember where this fell and all of that. But I mean, we've had we've had a number of high profile is this story mine to tell. Exactly. Uh, but more so stories. much more since the pandemic. Yes. I mean, the pandemic is really like the dividing line. Not that it wasn't an issue before, but it just reared its head so high and so strongly during the pandemic that it was like, okay, now we have a clear dividing line. Whereas when the submission was written, it wasn't as obvious. And that's why the play was so, it struck chords in people because it wasn't on the top of most people's conversation list. So in terms of the discussions that happen after a, a reading like that, what who does anyone in there have a role to to moderate? I mean, because often the the actors are still sitting there mm-hmm. and being kind of talked with by all the people who've just heard all the th- horrible things they've said when they were acting as these other characters. And I sometimes feel like, boy, that's a real gig to, after the gig. Your second gig is way harder than your first gig, which is to sit there and like be the person in discussion in some cases. True, so. true. Although I think most actors don't have that opportunity to hear what the audience, the initial impressions of an audience. Um, that it's it's you usually you're in a fully staged production. The lights go down. You go off stage. The audience leaves. You might have some people there, and you hear what they say, but they they're just going to say, "Oh, it was great." Sure. You know, they're not necessarily going to have that conversation with you about what the play raises, the issues that the play raises. So the, I think most of the actors loved having those conversations because they were hearing right out of the gate what people thought about it. And how much? How much do you think an actor feels any kind of responsibility to speak for the play? Because they are, after all, acting someone else's words 
and thoughts. They're they're inhabiting them and giving them life, but they're in no way responsible for their existence. So exactly, and I don't think anybody felt that pressure. I think the the thing that they bring to it is that that they've thought about it at least for a few weeks more than the audience has, and they've had to delve into it at least from the point of view of that character. Um, I remember when we did Assassins, we did a talk back after every performance. So that's a, that was a fully staged uh, production. Can you say just a few words about what that show is? Sure. For people who don't know anything about uh, Stephen Sondheim, John Weidman uh, musical that the characters are the nine people who either killed or attempted to kill a U.S. president. And there it's woven together across time. So you'll have scenes with Assassins that could not have known each other. But the idea is they're kind of putting together the people who had similar motives or similar life situations. Um, and they're not trying to excuse anything. They're just trying to give you the full picture of why somebody might do that. Why would What would lead somebody to feel like they needed to kill a president? Um, and so in it, anytime you do assassins, and it happened when we did it, which was 2016, I believe, um, I got several emails saying, why would you do this show now? It's why would you do it now? You have to wait till th- things are calmed down a little bit. It's like, right. when is that? Wait till that mythical time. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. When is that time? Like when, it, when aren't there school shootings? Yeah. When aren't there, you know, mass murders, you know, when aren't people angry at the president it, and when are people it, yeah. angry at the president, but usually it has to do with guns and that we don't want to enter into that conver- mm. you know, controversy about guns. Sure. I mean, we haven't really had an assassination attempt since Reagan, really, yeah. right? So, I mean, that was actually acted upon. We have a lot – every day there are people who are threatening it. But to actually go after a president, that hasn't happened in a long time. So that's the other thing about that show, which is so interesting, is that most people don't remember. The people, audiences that are coming to see assassins – don't remember, certainly don't remember, might remember Reagan, but don't remember Kennedy or, you know, sure. that, that's now um, such a long time time passed. But the issues that it raises, why people would use a gun for something, that is <laughs> immediately relevant all of the time. So you could never do it if, you, if that was your barometer was, oh, it's too um, intense of a topic for right now. Well, that's why we're doing it. Right. You yeah. know, there's exactly Sorry, but you live in the United States. Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed. But, so, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And we had a person, uh, one of our talkbacks from Australia, who stood up immediately and said, we just don't understand how you can let this go on. This is 2016, mind you. Yeah. Um, And here we are in 2022. (laughs) Yeah, there's been quite a torrent under that bridge. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, they have – their conservative party is the one that instituted the buyback of the guns. Sure. It's not a liberal conservative thing. They understand that mass shootings are not good. Right. And that people, most people don't need to have those kinds of weapons in their possession. Yeah. It's like that classic onion, you know, we, yes. we don't, we don't understand why this is happening. says only country where it happens. Right? Exactly. <laughs> the onion published every, yeah. every four weeks. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, that, that was a very intense conversation we had. Uh, obviously most people who come to see a show, uh, especially that show, Assassins, probably have a similar view so, but there were there were a couple of people who spoke and who were you know offended by it, and I figure well if we didn't offend some people we were not doing it right yeah so, yeah. So 
you said in the beginning that um, one one thing about doing a reading series is that you are not at the same financial risk as if you tried to put one of those incredibly controversial plays. On. Obviously, you have done, as we were just discussing, but that there is a lot more at stake for a theater company in a small town yes. if you're going to try to make every single show a show that you know someone's going to write into the op-ed page about. <laughs> so um, – I don't know. I'd be interested in talking about that because you obviously you you're you're not a person with a just a a single vision of what theater can be. You you use theater for all of the entertainment that yep, can absolutely. be found in it, and the, the beauty and the joy and just the glory of the music and mm-hmm. the inventiveness of the lyrics. All of that is part of shows that you've put on, and also you use it as this as this tool. And even then, I think it's still. I think the artist seems strikes me as being primary for you, but but you're mm-hmm. using it as this tool for for conversation starting. For sure, for sure. So can you just talk a little bit about that balance? I mean, as a person who mm-hmm. spent years running a, a theater troupe in a town like this, what that was like? Well, <clears throat> there is a difference between plays and musicals, and um, musicals tend to sell more tickets just by the virtue of the fact that it's a musical, even the more controversial ones. So. Sondheim obviously is a name in and of himself, and although we have lo- we lost him this past year, um, the name sells a certain number of tickets regardless. Okay. Like you know that if you do a Sondheim show, there's going to be certain people who come. Just like there would be for any number of Rogers Hammerstein shows, well, sure. there'd be a lot more people who would buy yes. those tickets. <laughs> but there are there there is a community. What we found in doing these shows is that there is a community of musical theater enthusiasts who were interested in seeing things that were not the most standard produced shows. So the really what took off for Fuse, we did um, a musical called Parade, which in brief is about a Jewish man in Atlanta in 1912 who's accused of murdering uh, a 13-year-old girl who works in the factory in which he is a manager. And he almost certainly didn't do it, although we will probably never know. Um, But he's railroaded by a a racist mentality in the South um, and uh, is eventually hung for this murder that he did not commit, almost certainly. Um, and this is a, this is not a known. This is not like a Sondheim show that is known at, by anybody really. There's only like five people who know what Parade is, you know. Um, and uh, so that was a big risk for us. But we did it in a smaller theater in the hopes that even if it didn't sell a ton of tickets, we would not be losing our shirt. Turned out we sold out every performance, which was amazing. But more importantly, about a week after the show closed, I got a letter from a woman whom I did not know. And there was a check enclosed. And the letter was basically saying, thank you for doing shows that are not the typically produced shows in in, in uh, community theater. Um, although I consider ours community-based professional theater. Yeah. Um, uh and here's a check to support you in doing more of that. So that was kind of like the linchpin that turned us in the direction of doing shows that had some kind of a social commentary. Do you – it seems like people in every genre of art get some version of the uh, just play your guitar or just sing or whatever it is. You know, we're not – we don't need you – you know, just throw the ball. We don't need to hear what you think about the world. Is that a part of oh, your world sure. as well? Sure, yeah. absolutely. And uh, but the good news is that, that there are other places that will do those shows. If you want, if you want something that just entertains you, there's other places that are doing those, and that that's the way it should be. So I was always of the opinion that the more theater that there was done in, in say college, 
the, the better for all of us. And that proved to be true. I mean, we heard many people who would go to another company show and then find out about ours or vice versa. Um, and that just, it was like self-fulfilling. Like it would just start to, uh, people would start to go to other people's shows too and, uh, and vice versa. Um, but yeah, there are people who were like that. I don't want to be confronted when I go to the theater. Right. We had people walk out. I, I Assassins, I'm sure people would have walked out, but there's no intermission. <laughs> So we have them there. It's a lot more You're awkward, locked in. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, I'm sure people would have left it had there been an intermission. Um, but we did a show called Merrily Roll Along, another Sondheim show, that isn't at nearly as controversial in, in content, but it is it is confrontational to the audience about asking them what have they done with their lives. You know, and it keeps asking that question over and over, and the ensemble comes out in between scenes and sings it again. Where, what have you done? What are you doing with your life? How did you get to be where you are now? Or do you have any regrets? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and we had people, that has an intermission, and we had people walk out, and they emailed me to tell me they walked out. <laughs> That's a baller move. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, good. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> I am walking out of this theater as I type this. I am displeased. <laughs> I am very displeased. Um, they thought it was too cynical, you know, a lot, a lot. And, I, and it is. It is. But the thing is, if you stay with it, if he'd come back after intermission, and I say he, and I'm not sure if it was a he or she, but if they'd come back after intermission, they would have found it because that show moves backwards in time. So it starts when they're at their, the characters are at their lowest point. And as it moves backwards, you see where they came from. Bit by bit, you start to see oh, this thing happened. That's part of what led them to where they are now, et cetera, et cetera. And you get all the way back and they're these wide-eyed, enthusiastic, you know, optimistic, can't wait for the future. And that's the, all the more heartbreaking because you know where they end up. But that's the end of the show is where it's the most optimistic. Sure. So you have to wait. Yeah. You know, un unlike if it go in traditional order, it, you would, it would just be a steady devolution. And they would probably stay through that because the whole first part would be happy. But then it would take this sudden turn at the end, whereas the way that it's structured, it goes the other way around. And so you're confronted for the first 20, 25 minutes of these very unhappy people. I think about – so I don't know very much about musical theater, which is, has, I'm sure, been clear through this whole interview. But I feel like I should say because the next thing I say might, might sound uh, like I don't have much information. I think of uh, Cabaret as like an all-time classic – like. Top, you know, top 10 and 100%. makes anybody's list. 100%. It is by no means uh, difficulty free in terms of its content. <laughs> it is start to finish almost uncomfortable. And yet there's something like it feels like you can almost present all of the stuff that's in Cabaret. Like I just the other day I watched uh, a Kennedy Center honors from back in the past on TikTok that had a cabaret and I can't even remember who was in it because that's how little I oh Joel Gray yeah. but before Joel Gray was Alan Cumming oh, yeah, they exactly. switched places yep. during I just the, I saw that scene. too okay <laughs> so uh, and I just so that made me think about the show and just thinking about like right I mean right from the jump that show is confronting you with uh, you know alternative sexuality with its uh, setting, uh, you know, during the Nazi era. And... Well, but as the Nazis are coming to power, and right. this is a very important, that's a very important point because the show, if, if you start to watch it, yes, it's a little disorienting. Like, why are they singing in German? You know, and, um, but it's entertaining. 
it's a little like off kilter, but you're not really sure. And then as the thing progresses, well, first of all, you're applauding all these numbers like you would if you were living in the time. And then you realize what's happening. This this slow infiltration of the Nazi party overtaking the, the country. And by the end of the first act, the guy who has been working with the principal actors takes off his coat and he's got his Nazi armband on. And you go, oh, all right. I've, who am I clapping for? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's why I think the show works. I also think that um, people forget that part of it and they just remember the songs. Yeah. So they remember Liza Minnelli on night, in nightclubs or on television singing Cabaret and you think, oh, I love that song. Right. <laughs> but she's talking about deciding to have an abortion. You know, that actually, that raises a really fascinating point too, which is um, – Musicals are one of the rare forms of art I can think of where a big chunk of the art can be divorced from its context so easily, where you can just sing the songs, and if you haven't seen what's around them or you don't know what the lyrics of the song refer to, you can have exactly the experience you were just talking about. Exactly. You think, Cabaret, I love that. And then you see it in the context of the show, and you're like, wait a minute. Oh, my God. You know, she is forced into this decision. Of she's pregnant, is she going to stay with this guy and give up her all of her dreams, which are not going to happen? But she doesn't know that, and um, she decides that she does not want to do that, and she is going to go have this abortion and, and give up this relationship and stay there, even though this threat is coming and getting stronger and stronger, and they know that it is. But she's like, it won't affect me, right? So. When we did it, it was the February, one month after the inauguration of Donald Trump. And it got put back. It was going to be before the election. And then for scheduling problem reasons, we had to move it. And I'm kind of glad we did. I mean, a lot of people said, oh, I wish you could have done it before the election, as if that would have changed. The, like our, our production of <laughs> right. February could have changed the whole course of history. <laughs> Trump almost won. I like on exactly. this state college. Exactly. <laughs> I would like to think we have that power, but... So, but I do think the show I left people. I mean, I had there's some multiple, but they were speechless. They couldn't applaud at the end, that kind of thing, because the Nazis come down the aisles and, you know, as the last thing is being sung and it's like, and then the MC takes off his coat and he's got the Nazi armband on. And you're like, oh my God, are we living in <laughs> yeah. the same, same time? And yeah. um, I think it's proved that we, Maybe not Nazis. Okay. You know, yeah. but, but we're. Yeah. Watching Cabaret during uh, one of the heights of American fascism is, it's quite an experience. I will, I will say, I, I, having been in that audience, it is quite a thing to, to be part of. And, uh, you know, obviously I, anyone who heard the show will know my politics, but yeah, I found it, I found it very affecting because that is one of the circumstances, especially as you were talking about the kind of uh, the march down the aisle Things like that do bring you physically into the show in a way that just looking at what's on the stage sometimes doesn't. Yes, and that, that we were able to do. I think the other thing about Cabaret is that in the original production, there was a mirror suspended over the stage in the original Broadway production. And the mirror would flip down and flip up. And so it would flip down during the applause of numbers. And so you would be looking at yourself in this kind of funhouse mirror, uh, applauding these numbers. And at first you're like, well, that's weird. But then as you realize what you're applauding, because the numbers, even though they don't sound like it without context, are commenting on what's happening in society at the time. And that's the other brilliance of, of Cabaret. It's like you don't – if you don't know the show, you just think, oh, that was a fun number. Oh, it's actually commenting on this thing that's happening. And then you, you the applause starts to get less 
enthusiastic. And am I right that you did that with a screen that so we, we did can it see with ourselves? Cameras. Yeah. So yeah. We, we couldn't do the mirror thing, obviously, for it's just complicated and um, ridiculously was, expensive. And also, if it had crashed to the floor, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> that well, that yeah. kind of killed that and some of the actors. So, so we ended up doing a, a video a feed of the audience on the on the back wall. So sometimes it would just be light. Sometimes it would be uh, some kind of a projection. And then other times it would be the, the reaction of the audience as they're, you know, applauding for a number. And at first, you know, they'd be laughing that they were up there. And then there's a number where the MC dances with a gorilla. And the final, the, the, the lyric is, if you could see her through my eyes, you wouldn't wonder at all. I see this beautiful thing. And then that last lyric is, she wouldn't look Jewish at all. And that's the end of the number and applause. And then we show the audience and that's when they would clap and stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the end was the Nazis standing in the aisles. And some people who were close to the stage, I noticed this in the video after watching it, the people who were closer to the stage were, didn't know the Nazis were in the aisle. And they looked up and saw the video feed of the audience and then saw that there was a Nazi person and they would... <laughs> do that you know do a quick yeah take and um yeah it was it was it's a very very powerful show it really is um so we're drawing to a close but uh we've we've mentioned that you're moving to wichita and yes. uh you were moving to wichita um because you're going to teach yeah. uh at the university there and um i wanted to ask about your how you talk to your uh you know, directing or other students about these topics we're talking about, about how they should think of programming and about how they should mm. think of approaching difficult subjects in the work that they choose to direct? Well, first of all, I, I am very big on having them write a manifesto. And this is meaning what kind of theater... Kind of Unabomber style. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and then go from there. Exactly. <laughs> Let this muse take you where yeah, it exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, uh, you know, an artistic manifesto where they get clear about what is it, what is the kind of theater they want to be involved with. I mean, this never happens. I have a friend who is in a acting program, a graduate acting program, and she told me recently that they've never even asked the students, what kind of theater are you interested in doing? It's just presumed what kind of theater you will do, and we are training you training, by the way, is what we talk about dogs, um, you, to do that thing. And it's like, what if I don't want to do that thing? What if I want to do another kind of thing? So there's that. Um, and so to be, I want the freshmen to go through this process so that from the get-go, they are clear and it could change tomorrow. That's the, the point. But you're starting from what is it that you want to do? What are the shows that you've seen that you would like to do? What are the shows you've been in that you'd like to do? What kind of people do you want to surround yourselves with? And from there, then it may be that they don't want to do anything with the social message. And that's fine. But but it's you can't just be left to the winds because somebody else will define you then. And you'll get swept up into that um, maelstrom. And it's really hard to get out of that because then you're kind of locked in financially. Like you're dependent on those jobs. And then maybe I don't really want to do those kinds of things anymore or do them at all. So for the first step is like, is this the kind of thing you want to do? Or what is it that you want to do? And then from there, if they want to do socially relevant stuff, there's always an audience for it. You just may not be filling 2,500 seats in a giant theater. You may fill 150 seats or 200 seats or 500 seats 
you know, but it's not going to necessarily be these. So you just have to scale. Then you start to scale what your um, what your desires are to to where the where the market is. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Have you? Uh, this teaching is not going to be a new thing for you. You have been doing it. Have you noticed? Um, like I tend to think that every kind of new cohort of people seems to be getting more and more aware and radicalized. Hundred percent. Um, have you noticed that in, oh. among your students? So you know, there's 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 a little bit of a pendulum swing of anything written pre, you know, 1970 is canceled. Right. Even if the overall point of the show is good, there might be material within it that's problematic, but we're throwing away the whole thing. But then you, in you, they find themselves then involuntary hypocrites. I call them because then they're, they like a show that is the same, a similar thing where something is problematic, but the overall show is okay. And, but they defend that. So that's that's kind of my mission is to take each show and talk about okay here's what's problematic is it is it so problematic that we can't there's nothing that can be done with it sure. or is it this little this moment or this character or something and can that be fixed either by the way the production is done or requesting permission to change the dialogue or whatever so we have that the South Pacific is a perfect example because there's a character an islander who speaks in this you know racist accent there's sure. no but the character itself is not it's based on an actual person as is every character in South Pacific but anyway but the show has a song called you've got to be carefully taught which is about you must you have to be taught to hate and fear basically a people whose eyes are oddly made and different skin of a different shade it's an anti-racism message so to throw out that show because it has this problematic character seems self-defeating I'm not even arguing to do the show but I'm saying there is value in the show because it does try to make this point. So, but, and we have more, much more recent examples. Some shows have aged, like we say, like a bag of spinach. Right. You know, like that are only five years old. <laughs> you know, I could yeah. name several right now that are, to me, much more unproducible than something from the golden age. Sure. Uh, you, uh, I was going to wrap it up after that last question, but you said something there that I didn't know was a thing, which is you said to ask for permission to make changes. Yes. So can you just say more about that? Yeah. So, else? you know, copyright law is that you license a show, you, it, the, the script that you get in the licensing is the script you are to perform. If you want to make changes to that, you need to get permission. And in this case of, of the, the golden age shows, it's almost always the estate's of the authors because they're most of them are no longer with us. Although John Kander who wrote Cabaret is still alive, 95 years old. Um, And now it's the Sondheim estate. You know, he, he was very open to changes, but his, of course his shows are not nearly as problematic as some of the other earlier things. Um, But yeah. So if you, if there's something you want to change, you have to get permission to change it unless it's tiny, like an and or a, but nobody's going to come after, come at you. But if you're, if you're, Changing the essence of something, you need to get permission to do that. And are those changes? So, I, like, I'm very familiar with the world of Shakespeare, where almost no Shakespeare play is ever produced in its entirety. Exactly. People ch- chop out huge oh, chunks. Yes. Are we talking about changes where you're uh, th- that kind of permission for like cuts, or just for I literally want to change the words this character is going? Well, to Well, I think for for Golden Age musicals like 1943 to 1964, there are people who would like to do both of those things: okay. cut significant portions and or change things. Um, and I think as we go forward, I think the estate owner, the owners of these shows are going to realize that if you want to keep them being produced, 
you're going to have to allow these changes to happen. Sure. And that is happening in little bits and pieces, you know. Yeah. As we go forward, we see these new revivals of like Oklahoma where they didn't change a word, but the presentation style was completely different. And people were like, that's Oklahoma. They thought it was changed. It wasn't. It was just the, how it was delivered. But but changing text like in Carousel and that that's going to start happening more and more. I guess I'll close with this idea, which one of my all time favorite movies is an American in Paris. And there's one of my favorite scenes in it is um, where Gene Kelly's uh, artist character is talking about how painters have to give up all control of what they create as soon as they sell the painting. And he said, you know, you, uh, you know, a musician, you know, might that they can perform their own work again or, you know, that, that kind of thing. But a painter makes the painting, sells it to someone and it's gone and the, where it's placed and how it's thought of and all that stuff is well, completely really out of his control. Thinking, well, but it is done and it, nobody's going to mess with it. Right. You would think it's the mo- one of the most fixed exactly. of art forms. Whereas he's saying like, I've, yes, I put this paint on the canvas, but what happens? Like, I'm not going to stand here to explain it to well, anybody it ever and again. The, exactly. And it won't be, he won't see it again. Yeah. And I kind of think about that in the context of what you were just saying. I mean, you know, for uh, obviously many of the people who wrote the musicals of the 40s and 50s are, are no longer with us. But um, but for, a, you know, a musical that's 80 years old or, you know, 90 mm-hmm. years old, I mean, in one sense, it's amazing that it's even reached our world, so to speak. That's it. And that people still want to put it on. That's right. But also, you kind of have to take some of the care of it along with you into you the do. modern world. You do. You know? Yeah. So you have to – that's what I'm saying to the – that's what I'm saying to my students it's not all or nothing as far as I'm concerned. There are shows, you, you have to look at them and say, is this, if you are going to do this, even with its problems, why would you do it and why would you do it now? What is it speaking to now? That would be the very first thing I would say. And then are there problematic things in it? If so, and most of them do, um, is it fixable? Is it changeable? Is it doable? Uh, or is it just this so pervasive throughout the work that it's not really salvageable? Well, this has been, as I knew it would be, uh, a totally wonderful conversation. I'm so thrilled that in your final week, uh, we're sitting in your packed up house. Uh, <laughs> however, I will say, I didn't say this during the interview and saying it at the end is pointless. But if you have heard music at any point during this interview, and we've been quite closely mic'd, so you may not have. But the downstairs of this house is a rehearsal space. And despite the fact that you're moving in like six days... There's still stuff going on. There's there still music is. being this performed is, downstairs. We're going right up to the bitter end here. <laughs> well, camp, a summer camp going till through Friday and we leave Monday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, amazing. you know, why waste time? That's it's exactly right. The movers will be moving a <laughs> exactly. while someone's exactly. playing. Exactly, exactly. Right? There you go. Uh, guys, we have to tip this over. <laughs> <That's right. you> know. <laughs> Oh, it's fabulous! But uh, I'm so I'm so thrilled you agreed to do this. Oh, uh, it's you such know, an honor! I, I adore you, and, and I'm, I'm so happy to capture right your back thoughts in this, in this form. Uh, if folks want to find out what you're up to in the world, how do well, they do that? Well, I was going to say website, but um, it's now shifting hands. Yes, my that's Fuse, what I was wondering. The Fuse yeah. Productions website will no longer be mine, but I'm very happy to put my email out there. So I'm going to do it. Rich Beaver, R I C H B I E V E R at Gmail. Fabulous. Uh, Thank you again for doing this. It's been really wonderful. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Thank you so much for listening to A Brief Chat. If you want to find other episodes of this show, you can go to abriefchat.com. There's also a monthly bonus episode, which you can get when you become a member of the A Brief Chat Patreon, which you can do at patreon.com slash abriefchat, or you can just go to abriefchat.com, and there's a link right there. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next month.